Today's scripture reading comes from Genesis chapter 12, verses 10 through 20. Would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. And then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the women, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt with Abram and he had sheep. He dealt well with Abram and he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this that you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. It's the word of God. You may be seated. Throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, there are many names for God. Sometimes when God just wants to be known as he's a God of someone, he'll say he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We call them the patriarchs. The series we're in is on these patriarchs of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Throughout the Bible, God is referred to as their God. He is not ashamed to be their God, but very happy to be associated with them. It is through their family that God would bless all families. We are blessed and part of that blessing. They are known as the patriarchs or the founders, the male founders and leaders of the families of the nation of Israel. I would point out that it is by God's decree that they are the founders and leaders of Israel. For those who feel, oh, this is just more of um, so chauvinistic, um, cultural, whatever. No, this is by God's own decree. In fact, their story is really about God as opposed to them, for it is about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The first patriarch, Abram, who later would be named Abraham, in our, in our sermon last week, I spoke of how he was told by the Lord to leave the place that was familiar and to go to the unknown. When I was younger, my family rarely went to church. Um, if, we, if you call the C&E Christians, that would have been very generous. Thank you. And um, we'd go sometimes during Christmas, and then I'd go to Sunday school. And I remember the teacher talking about Abraham. And I'm like, I was like, I was like transfixed. I was like, what? I was like, He freed the slaves, and he wandered in the desert. Man, he did everything. I I thought it was Abraham Lincoln she was talking about. (laughs) And then to see, like, and I didn't really even understand, even when I understood that she's not talking about Abraham Lincoln, the importance of Abraham in our faith, that God decided it would be through him and through his family that God would bless all nations. Today, as we dive further into chapter 12, 
we see Abram going to Egypt. In Exodus 20, 20, verse 2, God calls Egypt the land of slavery. We already know about the Exodus, I assume you know. I'm going to assume that you know about the Exodus, where the people of Israel are enslaved for many years, and then God leads them out of this. God calls Egypt after that the land of slavery. So if we're reading this, we should almost be biting our hands and like, where, what are you doing, Abraham? Don't go to Egypt. Don't go to Egypt. You know, the people reading this for the first time were the people of Israel who had left Egypt in the, in the exile after, not the exile, so the, the exodus, after the exodus. And they have the same kind of reaction. Don't do it. What are you doing? Where are you going? That is not a safe place. The author of Genesis is Moses. He is writing by the power and inspiration of the Holy Spirit. What is written here are the very words of God. They had many different oral traditions, and none of those held any weight compared to the inspired word of God through Moses. That's what the original audience, the original audience would have wondered, would have been wandering in the desert, and they would be reading about their forefathers leaving their leaving the place that they were going to vacation in the place that they just left. People of Israel, once again, wandering in the desert. They had left Egypt, the land of slavery. And they're reading this scroll by Moses, and they're reading about how their father Abraham left the place that they're going to. They're going to Canaan. He leaves Canaan to go to Egypt. They had left Egypt. And they're like, why is he doing this? Abraham is called by God, and um, has a call by God, and the call, the call isn't just for a track of land, nor for him to be a father of a nation, but God called him to be holy. Leviticus eleven forty five. For I am the Lord who brought you up from the land of Egypt to be your God. Thus you shall be holy, for I am holy. Moses will find out after this event that God is calling him out from others. Sorry, Abram will find out after the event that Becca just read that he is calling him out from others. What may have been acceptable in Egypt or in the Ur of, of Chaldees is unacceptable for the one who called him. So despite what the rockets may have told you, don't walk like the Egyptians. When we read this story, we're tempted to look at it as a moral play. As in, we look at Abram, and we're like, okay, he did this wrong, this wrong, and this wrong. Pharaoh is wicked. What about Sarah? And we kind of miss the forest for the trees because of this. Because the main character of this story is not Abram, it's not Sarai, it's not Pharaoh, but it is their God who rescues who stands up for those who can't speak for themselves. For a God who keeps his covenant, even though through ignorance or straight up disobedience, we fall away from what we are part in the covenant. He is the main character. He is the main character throughout all the scriptures. When you read about David and Goliath, you are reading about David's God. When you are reading about the people of Israel wandering the desert, you are reading about the God who leads them as a cloud by day and fire by night. Abram, the father of the Hebrews, is a sinner. But here's the great thing. Christ is a sinner's savior. God rescues, God saves, God raises up who he wants to and he lowers who he wants to. The book of Genesis isn't about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Exodus sounds very familiar 
Um, the story of Exodus sounds very familiar right now. When Becca was reading this portion of scripture from Genesis, from Genesis chapter 12, you may have been wondering, like, this sounds pretty familiar. And the people of Israel, when they read this verse, they're like, this sounds really familiar. It sounds like what we just had to go through. In fact, that's on purpose. The writer, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Moses, is using similar language in Genesis as he will in Exodus, or about the Exodus, which starts in Genesis. For instance, this story, just basically, I could go throughout all the things. There's about 20 points of similarities between Genesis and Exodus. I'm not going to do that for you today, so don't get worried. I just want to talk about a couple bullet points that are very similar between the story, this story, and the story, the Exodus. This story is like a mini Exodus. You have a famine in the land, verse 10. In Genesis 41, 54, there's a famine in the entire land. Then in verse 10, it says that Abram fled to Egypt. In chapter 46, verse 28, when there's a famine in all the land, Jacob, the grandson of Abram, his people flee to Egypt. In verse 15 of chapter 12 of Genesis that we read, Sarai, Abram's wife, is taken as a slave. In Exodus chapter 1, verse 11, the Hebrews are taken as slaves. In verse 17 of chapter 12 of Genesis, God strikes the Egyptians with plagues. In chapters 7 through 12 of Exodus, God strikes the Egyptians with plagues. And in verse 19 of what we just read, Pharaoh tells Abram to take his people, to take his stuff, and go. And in chapter 12, verse 32 of Exodus, Pharaoh tells Moses and the people of Israel to take their stuff and and go. This story, ultimately, what it amounts to, why do we even have this story here, since it doesn't seem to say a lot about Abraham's final journeys in Canaan, is that it is a sidetrack. Verses 10 through 13, um, Abram's been sidetracked. Verses 14 through 16, we see about prosperity and disobedience. And verses 17 through 20, we see the main point of this, God's faithfulness. Verse 10 through 13 of chapter 12, we see Abram, his following God, he's in Canaan. And then in verse 10, now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there for the famine was severe in the land. So he's in the land that he's supposed to be, but now he's going to take off to Egypt where God did not tell him to go. He's been sidetracked. In the movie and musical, The Greatest Showman, one of my favorite movies as an aside, it's the um, fanciful tale of P.T. Barnum. Toward the end of the musical, Barnum loses everything in a fire, and his performers are gathered around, around him, and it's time for the final song before the reprise, and the song's titled, From Now On. The character of P.T. Barnum realizes that he'd been blinded by the lights of show business, by politicians, about trying to curry the favor of other people, but really he should have been about the mission that he was on. So he's like, from now on, I will be doing that. I will not be blinded by the lights. I will not be sidetracked any longer. Abram, in today's scripture, it's about a time in Abram's life, he's sidetracked. This story doesn't have much to do with the final outcome of Abram's story. It's a, well, to use a gaming term, it is a side quest. Disclosure, I've been around teenagers a lot lately, so that's maybe where this uh, illustration comes from. 
But in video games or RPGs, you have your main storyline, and then you have like little side quests. Like if you're Zelda, you got to kill the, the bad guy. I don't remember his name because I haven't played Zelda. Or you can go help this farmer collect these chickens and you get a couple gold coins. It doesn't really add much to the main story, but it's just a, it's a side thing that's going on right here. Um, Abraham right here, it's a side quest. It's a task that you do when you are not working on the main story. It's important and God uses them to teach us things we wouldn't know without them. Actually, they become very important to the main thread of our lives. There is nothing good or bad that God will not use for, toward our work good. They train us, either by success or failure. In fact, many times our failures will teach us more than our successes. And that is the story we have here with Abram. Abram has his first trial. He's finally obeyed the Lord. He's in the land he's supposed to be, and he has his first trial, and he fails at it. Abram is known as the father of faith. Everybody reveres Abram. And we see with Abram, his first trial, he fails it. I hope that gives you some encouragement in your life because I bet you failed trials. In fact, a lot of times when we've been sidetracked, if we don't learn what we did wrong, then we haven't learned the point yet. And God may use something else to sidetrack us again until we learn the point. In my life, I know I've been sidetracked. In fact, it even seemed good and kind of a good thing at the moment. See, the deal was, I was in college, and I was going on this internship. My dad had just died, and I told people, no, God wanted me to go on this internship. But really what I was doing is I was running away from the feelings that I had, and I was trying to use God as my excuse. So I repent of that here today in front of all of you, because you should not say God has said when he has not, has, when he has not said anything. When you preach out of your own thoughts and your own ideas, in, in um, Jeremiah, the book of Jeremiah, God puts that at the same level as just false prophets. So I had said that, and um, I was, after that summer, I realized really not much had happened. Physically, I thought maybe this would be good for my career, which is totally stupid. Nobody cared I was on that internship. But I learned so much from the Lord through that, struggling through that. Side quest, we can get sidetracked in many different ways. Have you ever been sidetracked? It can come, it can be small things. It doesn't have to be something so big. That internship cost me a lot of time and money. It could just be a hobby that is taking way more of your time than it should. Sometimes it's God's direction too. Um, but it might feel like being abandoned. When I was in, when I first graduated from Bible school, Bible college, it felt like that. I was constantly being sidetracked through different things. Even between ministries, it felt that way. However, that was God directing my footsteps. Maybe you are being sidetracked and you're asking God, why do I have to walk through this valley? Sometimes we can be sidetracked through our own ignorance or disobedience. And God will say back to us, God will say back to us, this is what you wanted and I let you have it. But know this, whether through the Lord through our own ignorance, or through just living in a fallen world, Romans 8.28 is still true. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purposes. There is the that's the instruction. The example, the illustration of Romans 8.28 is what we just read here in Genesis. So how do we get sidetracked? The Bible is replete with examples of people being sidetracked. 
Abram's great-grandson, Joseph, has a dream about his brothers bowing down to him. There is no way you can tell me that if you heard that, you would describe anything close to what the, the journey Joseph had to go on before that actually happens. Before that happens, he's sold into slavery. He's falsely accused. He's imprisoned. He becomes the governor of all of the known world. And then his brothers come to him and they bow before him. Where you are to where you are, where you are going will not always be a straight line. And that is when God is even directing your steps. We can get sidetracked because God, side, God puts something in our way. He has some other place for us to go. In the New Testament, Philip is literally teleported from one location to another by God's hand. The prodigal son is sidetracked by his own greed and sin. Other times, it's just the consequences of living in a fallen world. Like the many times Paul wants to visit those, uh, wants to visit his readers, but for various reasons he can't. Or like our missionaries, for instance, the Slecks, who are missionaries to Ukraine. They physically cannot get to Ukraine right now, but they will. So there are three basic ways to where we get sidetracked. One, God. God's plans conflict with ours, and God's plans succeed. If you've ever prayed, thy will be done, or here I am, Lord, send me, you, not only, you, you, you have not only agreed to this, you've asked for it. Second way we get, we get sidetracked is disobedience or ignorance. Sometimes the answer to our prayer, God, why are you doing this to me, is you've done this to yourself. Our side quest was a choice we made. God will use that to grow us too. So it's not all bad and God won't leave us in condemnation. God will use it to grow us. Three, the consequences of living in a fallen world. Sometimes you are sidetracked not by your own choices, but the choices of other fallen people. Or like our missionaries, you haven't been able to go where God wants you to because of, for instance, in 2020, the panic over COVID-19 led many countries to cut off all all allowing anybody to come in. Maybe it's the weather. Maybe it's an unstable government or the, certain, the recent earthquakes in Syria and Turkey. These are not hard stops, but they are just, a, just wait and see. How is Abram sidetracked? That's the real question here. So he goes from the place that God had led him into Egypt. How is he sidetracked? We have to acknowledge that at the very least, God did not tell Abram to go to Egypt. Not in the same way that God told that the angel told Jesus' parents to flee to Egypt. The good news is nobody dies in Egypt, and Abram doesn't gain property in Egypt either, but he does gain quite a bit, and it's more, it's more like a side quest than part of the main mission. So was it God? If it was, we are not told in any meaningful way that God had directed him to Egypt. Was it disobedience? Maybe. That's a big question. Um, Pastor... Uh, um, forget his first name, but his last name is Larson, had said, no, it wasn't disobedience. It was prudence to go to Egypt. There's no food in Canaan, so go to Egypt. Pastor Skip Hedricks, on the other hand, says, no, it was disobedience. He should have cried out to the Lord, and God would have saved him in Canaan instead of going to Egypt. So maybe, maybe not. Was it a fallen world? For this, we can at least say yes. There was a severe famine in the land. Not just a famine, but a severe famine. Egypt had Uh, Egypt had food and Canaan didn't. 
Let's go to the ignorance or disobedience um, portion right here. Verse 10, we have, once again, I had already read that to you. He leaves the place that God had for him and goes to Egypt because there's a severe famine. And there is a serious famine in the land. I remember growing up in North Dakota. We had many of the same kind of uh, pepper rallies that you guys have, those warning things like fire safety, tornado safety, um, earthquake safety, which is weird because if there's an earthquake in North Dakota... I don't know what's going to happen to the rest of the world. Uh, We had firearm safety, and we also had blizzard safety. I don't know if Iowa, you guys have this. But I still remember our teachers harping on us. In fact, if the weather is bad, I will say this to you today. Like, if the weather was bad, I would tell you, if you get stuck in your car, don't leave your car. You heard that? Yeah. Um, The idea is, even if you see like a farmhouse out in the distance and you're like, oh, I can make the farmhouse, you get out of your car, which is safe. It's not comfortable, but it's safe. And you want to venture to the place you think is more safe. You don't know what's between you and there. In whiteout conditions, you might not even be able to see the farmhouse at the moment you leave the car. Or there may be, like we just recently had a blizzard where the temperature was about 30 degrees, meaning that if there is a stream of water between you and that farmhouse, it may not be, it may not be frozen solid. So now you can't even get to the farmhouse and you can't get back to the car. And that's how people freeze to death during winter. It was pounded in my head every, uh, almost like every year when I was growing up in North Dakota. Abram is in Canaan, the land of promise. There is a severe famine. It is bad. He decides to go to Egypt. But you know what we don't get in this story? Him crying out to the Lord. Sometimes we want to use our wisdom. And our wisdom is no good because Egypt isn't safe either. It takes a long time in the scriptures for the people of God to realize you cannot depend on wicked people for your safety. In fact, I think we have to almost go all the way to the kingship of Hezekiah before they realize that Egypt really isn't the safe place it seems like it is. Because when the nation of the Neo-Assyrian army encamped around Jerusalem, they told them, don't depend on Egypt, they're a bruised reed. They'll just pierce your hand if you try to put your weight on them. Faith and prayer. That's what we don't see right here yet, but I would remind you that it's a few chapters after this, in chapter 15, verse 6, that it says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. The New Testament writers will use that verse as shorthand for salvation by faith alone. He's still Abram, not Abraham. Not that when he's Abraham, he does everything perfect. In fact, he repeats this at a different place when he's Abraham. Don't you wish you just got everything the first time, right? And you didn't have to go through the same thing twice because of your own stubborn-headedness? Verse 10 provides for us somewhat of a problem because Abraham, without a doubt, is in the will of God being in Canaan. However, there's a severe famine that hits the land. You know, oftentimes we think, we judge whether or not we're in God's will by the way we feel, by the way things are going. We'll say things like this, Oh, I have a piece about X, Y, and Z. I didn't study the scriptures, but I have a piece about this. Here's the black and white. Trouble and trials are not an indication that you are not in God's will. And prosperity is not, is not a for sure sign that you are in God's will. Sometimes you can be smack dab in the middle of God's will and still have a lot of problems. 
But Christ prepared us for that, didn't he? He said, in this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. No place in this fallen world is easy. It is all difficult. But the good news is you get to pick your difficult. It is difficult to stand for righteousness, but it is also difficult to put our tail between our legs and be a coward. You get to choose your difficult. In verse 11, he has this prearranged plan that he shares with Sarai, his wife. In verse 11 here, when he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a beautiful woman in appearance, verse 12, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. They will, um, then they will kill me, but, um, but, they will, but they will let you live. Say, you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. This is a prearranged plan. Remember my illustration, my analogy about the blizzard? It fits here because in chapter 11, Abram does not know that Egypt's a safe place either. In fact, he knows it's a dangerous place. And Canaan, are you going to get me more water, Jeb? God bless you, my friend. All right. Um, In Canaan, there's no food, but in Egypt, there might be food, but there's also a sword. In Canaan, he only had to worry about was starving. Here, he has to worry about somebody actively killing him. In verse 11, we see how far off the mark Abram is. Abram is. He has a prearranged plan. He will save himself by offering up his own wife. Yikes, bikes. I want to just point out, because it's in the scripture, that Sarai was gorgeous. She's, in her, she's 65 years old. And it says that she was very beautiful. In, in the Hebrew, that would translate maybe as crazy hot. <laughs> You know, actually, the, the Hebrews, like in, in, in um, Hebrew folklore, um, in the Midrash, I, th- I believe, or maybe a different source, they said that God took a third of the beauty of woman and put it into Sarai. Well, I guess if you're 65 years old and you're worried about, like, all the young men chasing you, good for you. Good for you. I'm nearing 40 years old, and some of the people I used to watch on TV look younger than me today, and it really bothers me, but... <laughs> What can you do? I'm not, I'm, not, uh, I'm not like Sarai, I guess. When I'm 65, I'm going to look like I'm 65. Glory to God. Isn't it crazy that Abram, he's willing to save himself by offering up his wife, and let's, let's mix no words right here, to sexual slavery. The father of the people of Israel, the man of faith, that was his big plan. And it's cowardly, too, because he looks to save himself by hurting her. He places his bride in danger in himself and prosperity. So he makes this plan with his wife. That's a generous way of saying that he told her what to do. It's not a great plan for Sarai, um, his wife. She'll be taken as a sex slave by, I guess, whomever. And Abram will get the bride price. Yikes. You know, I don't care what modern ideology says. A man who doesn't defend his wife and the women in his life is no kind of man. Amen. He's not. A coward who would put his own wife, his children in front of him to protect himself is no kind of a man. And we have that in the scriptures that the the person who does not take care of his own family has denied the faith, is worse than an unbeliever. 
I'm only sharing this. I don't want to, I'm, I admire Abraham. I'm not putting him down and being like, I'm so much better than him. But I want us to see the journey right now so that when we get to Abraham and Isaac, you can see the difference. Instead of making excuses or whatever, but we might see a sinner saved by grace, even in the Old Testament. When we get to chapter 15, verse 6, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. This kind of behavior does not start with Abram. Go all the way back to our first father and our first mother, Adam and Eve, when the snake is tempting Eve. Do you know where Adam is when the snake is speaking to Eve? He is with her. You know, when we read it as, as, as believers, when we read Genesis chapter 3 and we have the snake deceiving Eve, we should be upset. Adam, why aren't you doing something? Why aren't you saying something? When the snake says, did God really say? Why doesn't Adam say, yes, he did? Now beat it before I crush your head. It would take the redeemed seed of the woman to do that. Contrast that with Jesus Christ in the garden. When the men come, from him, come for him, he puts himself in front of the disciples and says that he is the one they've come for. He doesn't put his disciples in front of him to die for him while he flees. Our bridegroom protects us. Part of Jesus' job now is he sits at the right hand of the Father making intercession for you and for me. How sad is it is when you hear about somebody who is in utter turmoil. They, they grow up poor. They've been the victim of so many people you want to shout. Is there not somebody who can intervene for them? Is there not somebody to take up their cause? You have somebody. You have the true bridegroom, Jesus Christ. In verses 14 through 16, we see that even though Abram is doing something very bad, and everybody will agree it's bad by the end of this story, he's prospering. In verse 14, we see, about, we see the evil of the Egyptians. Abram doesn't think much of the Egyptians. The famine must have been truly desperate for him to seek safety there. In Genesis 20, verse 11, Abram, he's in a different region, and he explains his reasoning when he does the exact same thing to the man who asks him, why have you done this? And Abram says this, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place. I imagine they had a track record of this. I don't imagine it. I've got concrete proof because the moment they enter Egypt, you have people remarking on Sarai's beauty. And they go to tell and they go to tell Pharaoh about her beauty so that he can take her for himself. In verse 15, we see these princes of Pharaoh being mentioned who are on the lookout for Pharaoh's harem. Matthew Henry, a man who lived much a very, very long time ago in his commentary, he calls them, uh, once again, these are his words, not mine, Pharaoh's pimps. It's an apt observation. What else do you call a group of individuals who under the who under either reward or threat of death are looking for people, women, to collect. Abraham allows this. In fact, he then is prospered in verse 16. Verse 16, we see Abraham's deception and cowardliness is rewarded. Verse 16. And for her sake, he dwelt with Abraham and he... And he had sheep and oxen and male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. So you're reading that and you're like, okay, he's obviously disobedient. Why is he being blessed? 
Why is he gaining so much from this deception? I'll tell you this. Prosperity is not a sign of God's blessing. Verse 16, we see Abram's deception and cowardliness being rewarded. But this world will always at least temporarily reward God's people for deception and and cowardliness. Then they will turn on them and destroy them all the same. I'm going to say something here. It might ruffle some feathers of people who might be watching it. I'm sure not you guys. But during all of the shutdowns, it was very easy for pastors to want to go after the good name, uh, to go after the um, acceptance of this world. And for a time, they were blessed by this world for that because nobody said, you're killing your people. Nobody said, everybody said, that was good. That was reasonable. You're doing what Jesus would do. People who don't even believe God exists were saying this. But now look at them. Their churches are being destroyed. And this world is turning on them. Abram is in prosperity, but the prosperity was not God's blessing, his disobedience. You can experience at least the common blessing of God when you are in disobedience, but don't mistake mistake that for God's blessing, your disobedience. I remember a person coming in my office, not here, you don't know them, they were cheating on their wife. And I'm talking with this individual, and he's telling me, but since we've been separated, I feel so free, I feel so happy. And this relationship I have with this other gal, it's going so good. And I told him blankly, it's salt water. You think it's quenching your thirst, but it's killing you, and you will not be happy. It's only for a short period of time. Sin is enjoyable for a short period of time, but its end is destruction. All your rejoicing will be turned to mourning in time, and they won't even want, and this person, you won't even want to look in the mirror. Psalm 73 is a psalm of Asaph, in which the psalmist says that God is good to those who hope in him. He's good to Israel, but as for him, he almost slipped. Why did he almost slip? He saw the most wicked of people prospering. He's so upset, not because he is suffering, but because the wicked, in his view, are prospering. They are healthy. They have no cares. This was oppressive to him, and he couldn't understand it. He said, until I went into the temple and I understood. Until I got God's view of what is going on, I understood I understood that their end is not blessing. Their end is destruction. And I'm saying all of this, that Abraham is learning this now. He doesn't know it. He's learning it. And we will find out by the time we get in a couple chapters after here, when God gives him the victory over these kings who had, who had taken his nephew Lot captive, that he will not accept the blessing from wicked men anymore. When the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah want to give him part of his plunder, he refuses it. He says, least you say that I have made Abraham rich. There's an English poet, Percy Shelley, who wrote a poem called Ozymandias. He based his poem on the statue that was uh, at the British Museum that they had required, a.k.a. stole. The statue was of Ramesses II. Ozymandias is the Greek translation of Ramesses' name. Ramesses II is the pharaoh that many believe is the pharaoh during the time of Exodus. The inscription, according to Shelley, read this. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Of course, this being a 
of ruin, of a person whose great kingdom, great mighty kingdom was just dust in the wind. The, the poet says that's what, that's what every mighty person has to look forward to is dust. That's all it is. You think you're so great, you base your love, you base your life on these things, it's just dust in time. So read the inscription, my name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. If you're playing a board game with me and I'm doing well, I will quote that. (laughs) Why do the people of God look to slavery of the world's mighty before they will cry out to the Lord their God? The Egyptians are nothing. They can't save Abram. They are dust in the wind. He will learn this in time when he refuses the gifts of mighty men in the future. After all, what does it amount to but dust at the end? Then we get to verses 17 through 20. If you're a person who likes to highlight things in your, in your Bible, you got your highlighter out, highlight verses 17 through 20 because this is the point of this story. Verses 17 through 20. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh in the house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you tell me that she was your wife? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. This story isn't about Abram or Sarai or Pharaoh. We are given the details of this event for this main reason. God is faithful even in our ignorance and disobedience. For who is a God like you who pardons the sin and forgives the transgressions of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. In verse 17, we've had from this story what Abraham has done to his wife, but now Sarai, her true husband, God intervenes. If Abram won't do anything, he will. And when God speaks, people listen. When God reaches out his hand, people realize who truly is God of this earth. And he strikes them with a plague. And verse 17 is when God has something to say. God will not, Abram will not defend his wife, but God will. God's promise to bless those who bless Abram and curse those who curse him were not just for Abram, but for his whole family. And Egypt, just that one nation, when they bless Abraham's descendant, Joseph, and Jacob's family, they are never more blessed in their entire existence. They thrive during one of the worst famines this world has ever known. But when they curse Israel, as in the Exodus, when they enslave them, they are never more cursed. And now we just remember them in the hydroglyphs and things like this. God's promise was not just to Abram, but to his whole family. They'll do this many generations down the line, and God will respond the same way with plagues. We don't know how many plagues, but there are more than one. It's a foreshadowing that God will not sit idly by while his people are used like this. Sarah has, Sarah has been claimed by God as well. How dare they treat her like this? How dare they enslave the woman he called free? They will do this again, once again, in many generations, and so many people will try to make you slaves of their stuff. How dare they? God has called you free. Half-truths and whole lies. 
Abram will do this again in chapter 20. When that, when that happens, the man will ask Abram, why did you do this? And Abram actually responds, and he responds in a kind of Obi-Wan Kenobi kind of a way. If you don't know, if you haven't watched Star Wars. Obi-Wan, um, Obi-Wan, after Luke asks him, why don't you tell me Vader is my father? And he tells him, oh, yeah, why, uh, you, told me Abr- you told me Vader killed my father. And Obi-Wan says, well, when he became Darth Vader, he stopped being Anakin, my friend. So what I told you was true from a certain point of view. You see, she is my half-sister. She is my sister. So what I told you was true from a certain point of view. Half-truths are whole lies. Sarai was perhaps the daughter of his father, but not of his mother. But she most certainly was also his wife. He knew this. He knew it would be a problem. And he on purposely did not say anything about it. You know, the best lies are not the lies that are impossible to believe, but they're the ones mixed with enough truth. If you've ever played with friends, two truths and a lie, you know this. You pick your truths, so everybody has two truths and one lie, and people try to figure out what the lie is. So you try to pick two truths that seem like crazy, that people couldn't believe, but are actually true. I always always do the, my birthmark is in the, uh, the colored part of my eye, which is true. And then I'll say something else that is also... And then for my lie, I will pick something from my life that is true, and then I'll change one detail so it can become a lie. The best of lies are mixed with truth. She may have been his sister, but she most certainly was his wife. Because of this lie, Pharaoh thought it, Pharaoh thought it was safe to take Sarai as one of his wives. Note, this is before the law, yet everybody knows that it is wrong to desire your neighbor's wife. Verse 20. Verse 20, I like to say this is back to our feature presentation. Verse 20, And Pharaoh gave gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. 13.1, So Abraham went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all they had, uh, had, and Lot was with him into Negeb. Now Abraham was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. And he journeyed on from Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai. When I was a kid, we didn't have cable, but every now and again on the bunny ears, we got ABC. And I remember there was Friday night movies. And during Friday night movies, they'd have commercials. And after the commercial was done, now back to our feature presentation. So as we journey with Abram through the scripture right here, we are back to our feature presentation. And we're left asking, so what was that all about? What did Abram learn? What did he gain? He gained lots of riches, yes. But I think he gained something much more valuable. That the wealth of wicked men is not something to desire. That it is better to be obedient than to have to go through such a thing. Perhaps it's foreshadowing about other events. This account uses so much of the same language as Exodus, so maybe it's that as well. Sure, all of that is in there. We have the rest of the scripture to see this event through, and that's all true and all in there. But this is the main point. God is faithful to Abram, to the promise he made to Abram and to his descendants, even when Abram isn't. So why doesn't God, so why did God allow Abram to journey to Egypt? I don't know. 
But Abram had gained so much more than just simply money and cattle from this side quest. He starts to understand the very nature of faith. And this will lead into 15.6. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Even when we fail, he still saves. The New Testament writers time and again will use Abram as the example of being saved by faith alone. And Abraham too is learning this. Worship team, would you come up at this time? So we've gotten to take this side quest with Abram. What have we gained? What have you gained through the preaching of God's word today? I hope you've gained this. God does not, is not, does not forget his promises. He has not forgotten you. Maybe you're, in a side, maybe you're in a time right now, it's like a side quest. And you're wondering, where is God during this time? Why can't I hear God's voice? And you think, has God forgotten me? I remember I felt like that one time in my life. Raking leaves, and I thought, I mean, I, I heard the call of God to be a pastor. I'm raking leaves, and I hate these leaves. And I'm like, I'm complaining to God, and God tells me I'm exactly where he wants me to be. The people of Israel about to go into the exile, according to the prophecy of Isaiah, they cry out, where is our God? Has he forgotten us? And Isaiah tells them the voice of God, saying to them, how can I forget you? I've engraved you on my palms. Every time we say, God, have you forgotten me? I've been sidetracked. Have you forgotten the promises you've spoken over me? How can he forget you? He's engraved you on his palms. When Thomas said, I won't believe it until I see the holes in his hands and the hole in his side, Jesus comes in and says, look, see the holes in my hands. And we hear the prophecy of Isaiah saying, how can I forget you? I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Metaphorically, the wounds of Christ, if you look deeply inside of them, you'll see Jason Michael Fisher. You'll see Wayne Furstenell. You'll see Phil Biddle. You'll see your name. He has not forgotten you just because you've been sidetracked. In fact, it might be his very will because he has people he wants to minister to through you. God is faithful even when we are not. I said before, Abram will mess up the same way in about five or so, chapter seven, whatever, eight chapters, whatever, whatever we have to add to get to 20. I wish I got things the first time. I don't. God has to teach me the same lessons time and time again. He is faithful even when we are not. And this, there is no place you will go to that is out of God's reach. He saves. So today, my, my sermon to you, my message to you is the message of this scripture that the people that Abram, the nation that will come from Abram will hear in Leviticus at chapter 18, verse 32, don't walk like the Egyptians. He has called you to be holy. He has called you not to love the things of this world, but to be holy. He's called you out of this world to be his own possession. So don't walk like the rest of the world. Don't walk like an Egyptian. The worship team's going to lead us in our final song. Would you please stand? This is our moment to reflect on the word of God. It's a moment to continue in our worship as you are listening, as you are following along. The Holy Spirit was speaking to you, and this is your moment to interact with him.